Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Father, we thank you again for uh, today, for the opportunity to, to worship you, to gather together as your people. Thank you for this opportunity to, to study the, the history of the Bible. Father, those great men who you guided and directed to uh, give us the scripture, to give us the confidence in what we do have is your word. So we pray you'd bless us and, and help us and give us that, that understanding that'll give us the, the peace and assurance that your word truly is your word. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week we started looking at the Apocrypha, and it was supposed to be a single lesson, but we kind of, or I kind of rambled on a little bit and ended up leaving a major part of it out, and that is why we don't consider the Apocrypha to be part of Scripture today. Um, and uh, we looked at the history of it. What I like to do, the problem is I've got a, um, don't have enough for a whole lesson today. And we're going to have a two-week break if I quit now. So if I start the next lesson and stop it, it's going to be two weeks three weeks before we start up again. And the next lesson is really important. It's basically looking at uh, would the early church have expected, in light of all that happened with Christ, in light of the Old Testament, would they have expected to be new revelation given in light of who Christ was and what he did? So the whole Old Testament background of covenants, of written documents, of who Christ was, who the apostles were, would they have expected, yes, we, we need more revelation, we need more scripture to complete what has been started here. And, and we'll see that uh, even though most of the, the secular academia rejects that idea, they think the canon was imposed on the church, that the church was just sort of going along with all these wonderful charismatic gifts and had no need for new canon, uh, therefore the church imposed that upon them in the second and third century. We'll see that that really is, is uh, really a ridiculous idea, that they would have expected revelation given their, their background, even given the, the uh, Greco-Roman environment that they lived in. Uh, would have demanded or expect, created an expectation for new scripture. So what we'll do, we'll do some review today, uh, sort of look at what we did last week, kind of do it with some question and answer type stuff. And what I like about this and what I enjoy about teaching it is that most people have no understanding of this time in history of the church. Uh, we, we're big on Reformation. We know a lot about the Reformation, but go back to the second, third, fourth century, mention people like Jerome or, or Cyril of Alexandria or Augustine, and it may uh, bring up some images of who they were, but it really it's pretty much just a blank slate as far as, as who they were. And it, to me, it's just as an important part of church history as the Reformation is, but we, we tend to focus on Reformation history and not this area of history as well. So it's always good for me to refresh myself and, and to uh, teach it again. So uh, just some review real quick. The Apocrypha was basically a collection of writings uh, that the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, and even some Protestants, a few Protestants, believe that are divinely inspired, therefore should be a part of the canon. They are First and Second Esdras, uh, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Barak, uh, the letter of Jeremiah. There's actually uh, parts of Jeremiah in the Apocrypha that aren't in what we call the Masoretic text, extra chapters. Uh, there's uh, extra chapters on Daniel as well, uh, and first and second Maccabees. Now, question, where did the Apocrypha come from? How did we actually get it, and why do we have to deal with it at this time? Where did it come from? What was sort of the, the history of it? How did it go from wherever it was into the 1611 version of the King James Bible. 
or the Geneva Bible, or the Tyndale Bible, or the Wycliffe Bible? How did it get there? Well, it's kind of a long history. I remember there, there were uh, basically two different canons, groups of, of scriptures in the first century. What, what were they? Remember what they were? The they, they were Exactly. Masoretic text was the Hebrew text that the Jews used. And we'll see, there probably wasn't one a Masoretic text, but Masoretic text wasn't really written until the Middle Ages. But we refer to that text that they had as the Masoretic text. As far as we know, and we'll see this when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as we know, the Masoretic text we have that was uh, created in the uh, Middle Ages is pretty much what they had in the first century. There's ways we can, we can show that. Um, and the Septuagint. Now, who can explain what the Septuagint was? What was the Septuagint? Old Testament, exactly, exactly. It was made in sometime in the second or third century in Alexandria, Egypt, by a group of Hellenized Jews, and we don't know much else about it. Uh, the, 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 the number for it is um, LXX, and that refers to 70 to the number of uh, scribes that translated. And the, 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 the myth is that all these men went into different rooms and translated the Old Testament into Greek and all came out and all 70, when they compared their translations, had the same exact translations. Now, we know that didn't happen, but that's sort of the, the, the myth that surrounds the, the Septuagint. And so they give it this LXX as the reference to the number of translators that supposedly worked on it. So um, again, a lot of the Jews, after they'd been dispersed throughout the world, uh, no longer spoke Hebrew. Um, and so they needed a translation that the Jews could understand that were throughout the world. And so these men created this um, uh, translation. Um, and again, it was used by the early church up till about the fifth century uh, AD. And uh, Again, it, it was, like I said, the translation that the early church used. Uh, the apostles quoted from it. Uh, Jesus himself did it. And I've read different um, references as to how much it was quoted. Uh, the normal figure is about 60% of the Old Testament quotes are from the Septuagint. And some people say as much as 90%. So it was by far quoted more than the Hebrew text was when the, uh, the writers of the New Testament quoted the Old Testament. Uh, unless you were able to translate Hebrew into Greek on the fly, uh, it was a translation that every apostle carried with them in their missionary journeys. Uh, the uh, Masoretic text would have been useful uh, going in and, and speaking to the Thessalonians, even most Jews. In, in these dispersed areas didn't understand Hebrew. They would have understood maybe the, the reading of the Torah, but as far as the other more um, obscure parts of scripture, which they normally didn't pay attention to, uh, it, they wouldn't, wouldn't have understood the Hebrew uh, hardly at all. Um, now keep in mind that the choice of the, the Septuagint over the Masoretic text by the church, it wasn't a choice of translation. We saw some of the debates that went, debates that went on between Augustine and Jerome. Um, and they weren't arguing over translation, like, like we would argue over you know, using the NIV versus the NASB or the King James over the uh, New American Standard. It was a debate over what was actually considered to be the word of God. And the early church did not consider the Masoretic text to be the word of God. It was the Septuagint. We saw Augustine's arguments uh, against Jerome about when he made the Vulgate, not using the Masoretic text, but to use the Septuagint. So uh, the church was pretty much arrayed against Jerome 
Jerome. We'll see more about Jerome in a second. But it, it was what they looked at as the scriptures, the, the Bible itself, not simply a debate about translation or debate about manuscripts. Uh, again, it was a debate about what is the word of God. And they actually believe, we saw last week, that the Jews had taken the Masoretic text uh, and corrupted it, that it not only was it not an accurate, but it was corrupted. We saw that in the dialogue with Trypho, with Jerome, in debating with the Jew about the, the nature of Christianity and the fact that Christ was the Messiah, he accuses the Jews and gives a number of examples of ways that you have corrupted the Bible. And he applies, he, he looks to the Masoretic text and shows the difference between it and the Septuagint and assumes that the Jews had corrupted it. So um, now, as far as the apocryphal, where was it in the Septuagint? If you were to open a Septuagint, like right now, we open a, an old King James, a 1611 version of the King James, where is the Septuagint? Or I'm sorry, where is the apocrypha? It's in the middle, right. If we looked at the Septuagint, where would we find it? It would be dispersed throughout. It was just normal books. If it was a history book, it appeared in the history section. If it was a wisdom book, like Ecclesiasticus, it appeared in the wisdom section. So it, there was no definite thing called the Apocrypha that was a, a collection of writings in the Septuagint. Now, uh, the way it came to be separated like we do is we have to go back to about 300 AD and what happened in 300 AD that we looked at last week there was a what in the church a split right the church there was the eastern church and then there was the western church now the eastern church what language did they speak Greek, right. So when they took their Bible, they basically just took the Septuagint, slapped the Greek New Testament on it, and that was their Bible, and that is their Bible to this very day. Uh, now, the Latin church, things look a little bit differently. They didn't speak Greek, so the Septuagint to them was useless. So they made, what, what, what was the translation that they made? Yeah, well, sort of. We call it right now the Old Latin. Now, it wasn't old then, but once the Vulgate came, it was old. And, yeah, so the Old Latin, and it contained the Septuagint, and it contained the Apocrypha, just like it was in the Septuagint, interspersed throughout the, uh, the book. And um, who was the man who changed all that? Jerome, exactly. And he went about to create a new translation, and the thing he did differently was that he took the Masoretic text and he used it to translate the Vulgate. Now, what was um, unique about Jerome, as we mentioned last week, is he had a sort of an entourage of, he was very wealthy, and he went out and to all these different monasteries and different churches and different uh, well, uh, patrons' libraries. And in Palestine, he discovered a Masoretic text. And if you had asked any of the, his contemporaries to show me a Masoretic text, they'd have had no idea where one was. They didn't even know it existed. They, they maybe knew that there was one, but as far as producing one, they, they had no idea. And if they found one and you asked them to translate it, they would have no idea. So Jerome had to actually find some rabbis and spent a couple years learning Hebrew, and then he brought that into, the, uh, into his translation of the Vulgate. Um, now, again, he did three things. He tr used the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text. Secondly, he took the books of the Septuagint that were not in the Masoretic text, and he moved them into a separate area in the Bible. He put them in the middle of the Bible, where they are today in most Bibles, even in the Catholic Bibles. Actually, it's not true. Some Catholic Bibles do, many don't. Um, 
So he separated them from the rest of the Bible. They were no longer part of the Old Testament, no longer part of the New Testament, had their own little section between the Testaments. And what was the third thing he did that was very, very important in taking these books out? Remember, he wrote something about them. What, what did he write about them? That they were not to be considered canonical. Exactly. He used the term canonical and ecclesiastical. Canonical meant that these books could be used for, for teaching, for instruction, for uh, the development of doctrine. Where ecclesiastical meant they could simply be read. We can read from them. We can be encouraged by them. So it would not be uncommon uh, in the ancient church to hear uh, First Maccabees read from. Uh, but they would not preach from that book, just simply read. So there was this, this distinction that he made. He says, as then the church reads Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees, but does not admit them among the canonical scriptures, so let us read these two volumes for the edification of the people, not to give authority to doctrines of the church. That was actually written in the Vulgate. Um, and, and Jerome wasn't the first person to hold this view. Uh, many people before him did. Uh, a man by the name of Melito of Sardis. What was a very, and these men were not just uh, preachers or teachers. They were normally bishops, and there were men who really did study uh, the Old Testament and were really interested in finding out what the canon was. It did a lot of work in temporal criticism and canonicity. Uh, so uh, these men are not just you know, people out there that we, we find uh, somewhere in history. These are men who did a lot of work and wrote a lot in these areas. Uh, Origen uh, did not believe that they were canonical. And Origen is significant because he probably was the, uh, the most detailed uh, New Testament, Old Testament critic that there was. In fact, he, he wrote books that uh, are lost to history. History. In fact, he actually had other editions of Septuagint. We only know of one edition of one Septuagint. There were many out there. He actually had access to other editions of the Septuagint, other texts that, I mean, most scholars would give their right arm to have. And he had them and wrote about them. Um, he had other uh, Hebrew texts that we wish we had. But most of his stuff he wrote was lost. Uh, most of it was so difficult to recopy that it just was never recopied again. But uh, he didn't believe that they were canonical either. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, we have origins, uh, viewpoints on the text from Eusebius. He was a church historian. Uh, Athanasius, the great warrior for the deity of Christ, didn't believe it was. Uh, Hilary of Pochers, um, his contemporaries, Ep Epiphanius and Cyril of Alexandria and, and John of Damascus. And you may have heard of these people, not know much about them, but they were very uh, prominent Christian bishops at the time, very prominent, knowledgeable men. And they basically agreed with Jerome's viewpoint. So Jerome just didn't pull this out of a hat. This was the teaching of the church that he sort of um, uh, immoralized in the, uh, in the Vulgate. Again, his opponent was Augustine, uh, who was against him as well most of the other church was. Um, so then how did it come into the New uh, or English translations? Well, they, they pretty much followed the same pattern that the Vulgate did. Uh, they put it in the middle of the Bible. And also we saw last week that they held the same view that, that uh, Jerome did, that these were good for reading in the church, but they weren't good for the production of doctrine or for actually preaching. Um, <coughs> Uh, Luther, went in his Bible, he had it in his Bible, and he uh, referred to it as the same way that um, 
Jerome did. Uh, Calvin quotes from the Apocrypha a number of times. Uh, he calls Baruch a prophet. Uh, he quotes from Ecclesiasticus. Uh, he quotes from the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, but Calvin, in, in his quotations, uh, he maintains Jerome's distinction. He says this, I would not urge the authority of these writers, it's the Apocrypha, these writers uh, strongly on our opponents. They did not allege them against us, so they ought to have some weight if it's not canonical, at least as ancient pious writers strongly support it. So he's basically supporting Jerome's idea that, yeah, they're, they're good. Uh, these men that wrote them were godly men, and what they have is beneficial for us. But he says, not as canonical, not as extracting doctrine from. And as you study the Reformers, most of them have this view. They quote the Apocrypha in ways that would make us very, very uncomfortable, because this idea that Jerome had was still a part of their, their thinking, their worldview. So any questions about that before we move on? Okay, again, just a summary of what we spent about an hour at looking, or 45 minutes looking at last week. I was just curious, you mentioned the uh, rabbis don't seem, the Jewish rabbis don't seem very much a part of the scene except for Jerome seeking them out. Do they have opinions about these apocryphal works? Yeah, we're going to see that in a little bit. Yeah, they, they rejected them. The, 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 yeah, we'll see that in a few minutes here in, in defending the, our view that it's not included in Scripture. Yeah, it's one of our big arguments. Um, so anything else before we dig into the um, why we reject it? Okay, uh, first reason we reject it is that it's lack of Catholicity. Uh, the Catholic Church, again, most of the people we're arguing against here are Catholics. Um, one of their arguments is that, well, it's always been a part of the church. The church has always believed that these books are canonical. And um, it, it's just not. There's no way that that can really be defended. Um, it was not considered as canonical by the Jews. Uh, Paul says that the Jews were given the oracles of God. Yet there's no evidence anywhere that their, other than their presence in the Septuagint, that they considered them to be the word of God. Uh, no rabbi. Is ever said to include the, Septu the the apocrypha as part of the word of God. Uh, now, what what they'll say is that well, there there were two canons. There was a what we call the Palestinian canon, which was essentially the Masoretic text, and there was another canon called the Alexandrian canon. And these were both two canons that the Jews used. The Masoretic text, uh, the uh, the Palestinian canon, did not have. The, the Apocrypha, where the Alexandrian canon did have the Apocrypha. Now, the problem with that, and again, we're talking about Hebrew text that had the Apocrypha, and the problem with that is that there's no evidence at all that there was an Alexandrian canon, none whatsoever. The only evidence we have is the probability of one that the translators of the Septuagint had that they used to translate the Septuagint, but th there's no evidence of that whatsoever. None at all. They cannot produce anything even close to an Alexandrian canon to parallel the Masoretic canon or the Palestinian canon. So uh, just not no evidence at all. Again, if there was one, it's lost and cannot be discovered. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, uh, he was a, a, um, a Hellenized Jew and probably one of the most uh, brilliant Hellenized Jews of, of this time period. He lived from 20 BC to 50 AD, so his life actually overlapped that of, of Christ and some of the apostles. Um, again, if there was this uh, text, he would have known about it. 
because uh, he was a, a very profound textual critic. Uh, he loved the Hebrew scriptures. He loved uh, Greek philosophy. He loved the Greek language. Yet he makes no reference whatsoever to a Palestine or, or Alexandrian text. In fact, when he uh, speaks about the Old Testament and he wrote about the Old Testament canon prolifically, uh, he only lists 22 books, the same books that Josephus lists. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, I think I have this quote, quote here for F.F. F. Bruce. It's asleep. Is it asleep? Yeah. I need to press home to unlock. Nine, okay, nine, yeah. nine, nine, nine. Oh. <coughs> okay. I think I can remember that. Yeah, but it's not up there. Okay. Uh, this is what F.F. Bruce says about a follow, and, uh, follow of Alexandria. He was an illustrious representative of Alexandrian Judaism, and if indeed Alexandrian Judaism did indeed recognize a more comprehensive canon than the Palestinian Judaism, one would have expected to find a trace of it in Philo of Alexandria's voluminous writings. But in fact, Philo has not given a formal statement on the limits of the canon, such as we have in Josephus, the books of uh, uh, the books he acknowledges as scripture as a as scripture, as holy scripture, were quite certainly those books included in the traditional canon. Uh, he shows no sign of accepting the authority of the books that we know as the Apocrypha. So what he's saying here is that, remember Josephus gave a very uh, detailed list of the books. Well, Philo doesn't do that, but he does mention that there are 22 books, which it's safe to assume are the 22 books that Josephus. And Bruce's point here, if anybody would have known about an Alexandrian text, it would have been Philo. Okay, he, he was a, a, a broad student, a very a deep, profound student of uh, Judaism and of Greek culture, yet he makes absolutely no mention of it at all. Again, so there's no evidence from the Jews that there was this expanded canon. Uh, Philo doesn't mention it. Josephus does mention it. Remember, we saw Josephus mention the Apocrypha, but what did he say about it? It's not part of Scripture. And he got it from, not from a, a Alexandrian uh, text, he got it from the Septuagint. He knew that they were there by the Septuagint, not from some a secret Alexandrian canon. And uh, Josephus is interesting because he's not arguing as a... Um, a proponent of Judaism. He's not saying, okay, this is what we believe the canon is. He's not promoting this canon. He's simply reporting historically what the Jews have believed. So he's got no skin in the game in making his points. Just, yeah, I don't think it's canon. I don't think it's inspired. But this is traditionally what the Jews have. Remember, Josephus was a, a Roman general who had pretty much apostatized from Judaism and fought for Rome. And uh, he says, look, there's our, our people have no history of a second canon. These are the books. The other books are not considered to be canonical. Um, on top of that, there's evidence that the Alexandrian Christians, these are the Christians who, who would have understood or had this canon, did not accept the Apocrypha as part of the canon. Um, there's evidence that Jerome did not originate the idea of these books being assigned to a subordinate, or uh, Jerome didn't originate the idea that these books are assigned a subordinate designation. Uh, there are many others during his time that believe this. So like I said, he didn't just pull it out of a hat. He took it from the surrounding Christian uh, understanding of the Apocrypha. 
Uh, Jandy Kelly, who is a, a, a scholar of this time period, uh, his book Early Christian Doctrines is probably one of the, if you want to read a good, good summary of this time period, this is probably the, the seminal book on that. Uh, he says this, the view which has now commanded itself fairly generally in the Eastern Church as represented by Athanasius Cyril of Jerusalem, Gregory of Nazanius, and Epiphanes was that the deuterocanonical books should be regarded as subordinate in a subordinate position outside the canon proper. So we saw when we looked at the Council of Trent, that idea of deuterocanonical simply means the apocrypha, fancy way of saying the uh, apocrypha. So uh, this man studied all of these men uh, and he found that most of them simply did not agree with the designation of these books as being apocryphal. Uh, even various popes during the Middle Ages did not consider these books to be canonical. Uh, pope Gregory, probably the most distinguished, highly esteemed pope, uh, used Jerome's designation. He says this, if we can read this. Here we close our commentaries on historical books of the Old Testament. He was writing a commentary on uh, Kings and Samuel. And he says this, for the rest, of, that is, the other historical books, Judith, Tobit, and the book of Maccabees, remember, the Apocrypha saw those as historical books and attached those right after the book of, of Samuel and Kings. So he says, look, we're going to stop here, basically, because these other historical books uh, are, are counted by St. Jerome out of the canonical books and are placed amongst the Apocrypha, along with Wisdom Ecclesiasticus, as is plain in the Prologos Galitas. Now, what he's saying here is, look, we're, we're, we're stopping here in our study of history. Why? Because these other books are not canonical. Why? Well, because Jerome designated them as not canonical, as well as these other books that are in other parts of the Septuagint, Ecclesiasticus, they were wisdom books. And he says, as is plain from the Prologos Galatus, what, what that is, is, so I can remember this, when Jerome translated the Vulgate, uh, in different sections of the translation, he had like summaries or descriptions. Uh, and this, this uh, other men did this too. Uh, Wycliffe did this. Uh, Tyndale did this. So, for example, Tyndale, when he starts uh, translating the, the Pauline epistles, there's a little summary there where he explains the Pauline epistles. Well, what Jerome did was when he translated the Book of Kings, which were Samuel and Kings, he called those all the, the Book of Kings, uh, he had a little prologue there. And it's in that prologue where he describes these books, at, these other books as being ecclesiastical. So all that we've read about Jerome and what he said on the Apocrypha was in this little prologue called uh, Galatians. I think it means uh, the prologue of armor or a helmet or something like that. So when he got to the book of, these books of Kings, he's going to explain why we're not adding on these other books. And that's where, again, he defines them as uh, ecclesiastical. And that's what Gregory is saying here. Look, we're going to follow uh, Jerome's viewpoint here, which he specifies in the Prologos Galatius. And not only that, but we're going to follow the same thing with the Book of Wisdom and the Book of Ecclesiasticus as well. Uh, for the words as well as councils of doctrines, of councils as of doctors, are to be reduced to the correction of Jerome. And there's a lot of debate right now in Roman Catholics that, that other uh, certain councils uh, declare these things to be canonical. Early councils, like in the 6th, I think there's one in Carthage, can't remember exactly when it was, but it was a very early council that declared these things to be uh, canonical. And when you get down in, into the nitty-gritty of the debates between Catholics, there's all these debates about whether these things were considered to be ecumenical councils or just local councils. So they, they, there's all these uh, deep debates about it. But what Gregory's saying here is it doesn't matter what any of those things say. We're going to stick with what Jerome said. 
Again, nor be disturbed like a raw scholar if you should find anywhere these books reckoned as canonical, either in the sacred councils or the sacred doctors. For the words as well as the councils as of doctors are to be reduced to the correction of Jerome. Now, according to his judgment, in the epistle to the bishops of Chromatis and Heliodorus, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, Heliodorus, uh, these are men that uh, Jerome wrote letters to. There are other bishops that he wrote letters to defending his view of the ecclesiastical nature of the Apocrypha. So uh, he wrote these men, he says these books, is a summary of what he wrote, and then these books and any other like books in the canon of the Bible are not canonical, that is, not in the nature of a rule confirming matters of faith. Again, what a way to describe it. They're not good for confirming matters of faith. So if you've got to defend something, don't go to uh, Judith or Tobit to defend it. Yet they may be called canonical, that is, in the nature of a rule for the edification of the faithful as being received and authorized in the canon of the Bible for that purpose. By the help of this distinction, you may see your way clearly through that which Augustine says and what is written in the provincial councils of Carthage. Now, the two points here about Augustine. Remember, Augustine was against Jerome. He thought the Apocrypha was inspired. So Gregory's saying here, look, this will help you deal with Augustine. Just remember this and, and, and ignore Augustine. Also, ignore the Council of Carthage. That was another council where the church, a local church, local region, declared that these books were canonical. So Gregory, one of the, one of the greatest popes, most highly respected popes, he completely, completely changed the, the nature of, of the uh, popery, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he speaks very clearly that these books are not canonical. Points to Jerome, points to the councils, points to other great doctors, and says, ignore them and stick to what Jerome actually said. So that's a big chink out of the armor of Catholicity that the uh, Roman Catholic Church promotes. Again, even the language of Trent, uh, we read it a couple times, I won't read it again. Uh, when it talks about the Apocrypha, it calls it deuterocanonical. And what they're saying is that we're making these books canonical right now. That's pretty much what they're saying. That, that implies that, that they weren't canonical before. So how can they cl claim Catholicity when in the middle of the 15th, 16th century they're saying that these things are canonical? That sort of hints that maybe they weren't in agreement before that. Why do they have to declare them in the 1500s as canonical if the church always believed that, like the other books of the Bible were done? It makes the claim of uh, Catholicity rather dubious. Now, th this is from the uh, New Catholic Encyclopedia. So this is quoting Catholics themselves. Notice what it says here. Uh, St. Jerome distinguishes between canonical books and ecclesiastical books. Uh, the latter, he judged, were circulated by the church as good spiritual reading, but were not recognized as authoritative scripture. Okay, so they're properly representing Jerome. The situation remained unclear in ensuing centuries. For example, John of Damascus, Gregory the Great, Warfield, uh, Nicholas of Lyre, uh, Testato, we haven't read these men, but there are other men who agreed with Jerome, continued to doubt the canonicity of the deuterocanonical books. According to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criteria of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. Okay, so why didn't they declare this to be canonical before? Why was there so much disagreement if they were canonical books? 
Um, this decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent definitely settled the matter of the Old Testament canon. That is not to be, I'm sorry, that is, that this had not been done previously is apparent from the uncertainty that persisted up to the time of Trent. So even the Catholic Encyclopedia is saying, yeah, th this wasn't solidified. The church wasn't sure, it wasn't unanimous on this until the actual Council of Trent declared it to be. So e even the Catholics, uh, when they look at the, the wording of the Council of Trent, recognize yeah, there, there, there's something not right here. We really can't claim Catholicity or the universality of these uh, books as being canonical when we declare them to be that way in Trent. So Catholics do see the Apocrypha as canon? Yes. Yeah, but the idea of it being Catholic from the very beginning, they're saying it's rather dubious, but yet they'll still claim that as being true. Jeff, do we have evidence of them, of the Catholic Church actually using the Apocrypha as, as doctrine, though, as from teaching? Because I grew up Catholic, and I don't, I know that those were in the Catholic Bible, but I don't recall anything ever being preached from yeah they, they do um, they uh, we'll address that in a few minutes because we're going to look at one of the reasons why it's not considered uh, can canonical is because of the, the heretical teachings that are in it that they will use or have used to promote certain uh, incorrect doctrines yeah so so now the average Catholic is probably couldn't name one of the books uh, of the Apocrypha but uh, you know when you get on online debates with people that know about it they, they will quote and then it dissolves into an argument about canon, yeah, so, and which boils out an argument about the, um, you know, the, the infallibility of the Catholic Church in, in choosing the scriptures, but anyway. Um, uh, there's also another place that's interesting that, that we find uh, statements about the Apocrypha. There's a thing called the, um, the Glossa Ordinaria, and what it is is it's a, uh, somebody went out and, and took a look at all the uh, commentaries of the church fathers. And what they would do, they would often write in the columns of their Bibles uh, little sort of uh, running commentaries of what the passage meant. And these ended up becoming rather detailed. Uh, and it, it run on for pages. And somebody went and collected these things and put them into a, a single book. And again, it, it's called the Glossa, Glossa Ordinaria. And um, what you extract from this is what these men who made these comments actually thought about the Apocrypha. And uh, this is what is said in that. Now, this is a quote from somebody else. I haven't actually found this to be able to read it, but this is what I read, what a scholar said about this. The uh, Glossa Ordinaris states in the preface that the church permits the reading of the apocryphal books only for devotion and instruction in manners, but that they have no authority for concluding controversies in matters of faith. It goes on to state that there are 22 books of the Old Testament. Enlisting those 22 books, it uses the testimonies of Origen, Jerome, Rufinus as support, and when commenting on the apocryphal books, it prefixes an introduction to them all saying, here begins the book Tobit, which is not in the canon. Here begins the book of Judith, which is not in the canon, and so forth for Ecclesiasticus, Wisdom, and Maccabees. So what he's saying here is, look, we have these glosses that the early church fathers, and even all the way through the Middle Ages, that, that they created as they read their Bibles, just little kind of notes they wrote on the side. And when we collect these things and put them all together, what we find in these books here are, are direct statements that say that they are not canon. So before you read the book of Tobit, 
there's a statement there that says, don't consider this to be canon. And they weren't saying don't read it, but they're giving a warning that don't use this book for doctrine or settling matters of faith. Yes, read it, be encouraged by it, but don't use it as doctrine or to settle matters of faith. Uh, other men, uh, William of Ockham. You've all heard of William of Ockham, right? Famous for inventing the razor, Ockham's razor. No, that, that's a joke. Anyway, he, uh, again, a very prominent church figure. Uh, he says neither Tobit or Judith, nor the Maccabees, nor Wisdom, nor Ecclesiasticus are to be received into any such height of honor, uh, since the church has not, did not number them among the canonical scriptures. So here a man in the Middle Ages uh, is basically saying, this is a, I think the 14th century, saying that, look, don't consider these to be part of scripture. Uh, Erasmus, uh, he had a, an explanation or a teaching on the Apostles' Creed, um, and a Decalogue also says that, that, look, these are not to be considered to be canonical, and he refers back to the church fathers. So he goes on to say that the church did not grant them the same authority uh, to books like Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, uh, which were not considered canonical scripture. So um, again, and, and I could pull out, I, I probably, I went down each century, and I could easily pull out uh, 10 or 12 men each century, uh, famous men, not, not just in you know, a little pastors off to the side, but very famous men who make these statements over and over again, backing up Jerome's claim that they're, they're not canonical. They're ecclesiastical. Um, so any questions about the Catholicity of these things? Yeah. Jeff, you said uh, earlier about the reformers that they quoted these books, but they didn't did they not address this issue head on? Yeah, well, well Calvin did. Uh, he, they, they thought it was okay to be there. I mean, they, they, they believed Jerome's idea that they were good, they're beneficial for the church, but don't use them for doctrine. Uh, and I, you heard a quote from Calvin that I read. He basically says the same thing. Luther says the same thing. Uh, were you here last week? Yeah, we, we had a, looked at a quote from Bunyan last week where he, he was in a, a very depressed state. And uh, he, he was despondent quite a bit. He had a lot of melancholy experiences. And he remembered a verse that encouraged him, that this lifted up his soul, yet he couldn't remember where it was. And, and as we said last week, he was a man who knew his Bible. As Spurgeon said, when he, when he was cut, he read Bibline. And yet he couldn't remember where this verse came from. And then he realized one day that it came from one of these, I think it was the book of Tobit. And he said, fine, you know, God used it to encourage me. And that's how they would have seen those books. Is, yeah, they, they can encourage us, they can help us, they can uplift us, but they, they can't instruct us in the faith. So, and that was the typical understanding of the, it wasn't like, oh, well, I was helped by the Apocrypha. Oh, God used that word, I, we can't do that. No, it was, it was fine to him. It was what they were expected to be for. Yeah. Are these disagreements among church fathers and, and uh, scholars and that sort of thing, were these happening behind the scenes? Or was this, was this impacting the efficacy of the church to non-believers? I wonder if they're... Probably not. Uh, it was probably, I mean, it, it may have trickled down, but it was mainly just an issue of... Uh, you know, I don't know the people that did seem as canonical, how much they used them. It was just a matter of principle. What is God's word? Like somebody, you know, how many people read 3 John? Not many people. But yet if we said, let's take 3 John out of the Bible, there would be an uproar. So, yeah. It, and yet, you know, we wouldn't 
you know, lose a member of the Trinity if we took Third John out of the Bible. It wouldn't have much practical effect on our faith. But yet we'd still say, no, it, it's God's word and it needs to be here. So that's sort of how these debates, debates went. And if you can take one book away, you know, why not take other books away? You know, if you don't like this one, take something else away. So yeah, it had, it had a, it was theoretical, but it did have practical implications to the people of God, just assuring them, yeah, that these are the scriptures. And if we can take them away, we can take other stuff away too. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Um, another thing about the Apocryphal too is, is that when you look at the, the New Testament and the debates about the books, and there are two categories of books in the New Testament debates, those that, that certain people thought should be added to the scriptures that other people didn't, and there were books that people thought uh, should be added but others didn't. So you had books that, do we reject these books and do we accept these books? The books like The Shepherd of Hermes, what we saw in the church rejected, and books like Second Peter, Revelation, Jude, the church debated about all the way into the third century, fourth century, but eventually said yes. We'll take these. And after that, the debate pretty much was over. You, know, you don't find people uh, in Augustine's day uh, debating about whether Revelation should be a part of the New Testament or whether Second Peter should be. It was all accepted, and the church was in complete agreement with this. Unless you were you know, a part of some cult or something like that, you didn't uh, break out of that orthodoxy. Where with the uh, Apocrypha, it never quit. The church never said, okay, these are, this is the end of this discussion. These books are part of the canon. Let's move forward and live with that, like they did with the New Testament. It, it debate went on and on to Jerome's day and long after Jerome. In fact, even um, I mentioned that the Vulgate, when the Vulgate was created, uh, the old Latin version didn't disappear. Okay? It, it was still used all the way up till um, the time of the Council of Trent. Another thing the Council of Trent did was it basically said that the Latin Vulgate is the inspired word of God. And if you use any other translation, then you're anathema. So that old Latin, old Latin translation that people used basically went by the wayside. But until that time, it was used right alongside the Vulgate, like the King James is used alongside the NASB. Uh, so this debate never went away. People still use the old Latin version thinking that those apocryphal books should be part of the Old Testament, where when you look at the New Testament debate about its books, you know, nobody had it. There was no Bibles going around without the book of Revelation. Okay? It, it was, the debate was over with. And where with the, Septu, with the uh, Apocrypha, it, it rages until today. Finally, uh, they're to be rejected because uh, there's false teachings that are there. Um, prayer for the dead, purgatory, uh, it cheapens marriage by lowering the bar for divorce, uh, and there are many gross historical errors in the books as well. Uh, they support the Catholic Mass and, and claims uh, sins can be forgiven by alms. So I think a Tobit, uh, uh, Baruch says that you can uh, you know, give money and have your sins forgiven, give money to the poor and have your sins forgiven. Um, now, part of the reason that this debate came to the forefront during the Reformation, uh, to answer your question, Karen, is because these books were being used in the Reformation debates about these particular doctrines. So if you were having a debate with a Catholic priest about salvation for works, um, or, or salvation by works, uh, they would quote Baruch and say, no, Baruch says that if you give alms, if you give money, you can have your sins forgiven. Uh, in arguing about the uh, indulgences, uh, it was 
there, a purgatory. All these books were used, and, and even the passages that, that talk about it, it's not clear. It doesn't say, okay, and purgatory is such and such. They have to even kind of twist those scriptures often uh, to make them say something about purgatory. Um, so again, they teach doctrines that the rest of the scripture just completely rejects or doesn't mention at all. Now, how can you reconcile Paul's teaching? with giving money to have your sins forgiven. You just simply can't, but yet they, they, they had to make that point, so they, they pulled these books in to do it. And that's sort of why the, this debate became heightened during the Reformation, too, uh, because they were using them to, for doctrine, basically, where before they never would have done that. They never needed to do that because pretty much the rest of the church agreed with them. So it was this idea of them being uh, taken and not used for the encouragement and support of the church, but for doctrine and faith that this issue came to the forefront. Um, again, and it, this just simply leads to the idea that there really is no, um, no reason for them to be a part of Scripture if they contradict the rest of Scripture. Um, Here. Sure. Uh, here's a quote by William of Ockham. Neither Judith nor Tobit nor Maccabees nor wisdom nor Ecclesiasticus are to be received into any such height of honor as compared to Scripture, since the church did not number them among the canonical scriptures. So Ockham is not just giving his opinion, he's giving his opinion of the church, what the church has always held. Um, I can't remember where I got this quote from, but. That may be I'm not believe that quote. I didn't document who so, made it. Quick question. Yeah. What scripture. How is what, how do you define that, and how is it being used in this scripture? Is there's canonized scripture and non-canonized scripture, but what's being called scripture? It's probably just in a general way here. If you open up your Bible, this is scripture, and I mean, in this quote here that that Occam is making. Um, let's see. Yeah, right there, as compared to scripture, that would be canonical books. So if we look at these books, uh, they, they do not receive any such height of honor as compared to scripture. So when we compare them to the Bible, uh, the, the canon, they don't receive that same honor. That, that's the way it's used here. But often they just simply use it as you know, the Bible that you had. There was scripture in there. It was all scripture, but certain scriptures had different weight. It was used rather loosely at times. But, but um, Occam here is defining it as the canon. When you compare these writings to the scripture, to the canon, then they do not have the same place of honor as that scripture or canon does. So. And uh, this quote here, th this is a quote of the uh, Council of Trent. What is a man by the name of Westcott, who is a, a, a brilliant Greek scholar in the late 19th century. He says, this is fatal decree, that's the Council of Trent, in which the council gave a new aspect to the whole question of canon, was ratified by 53 prelates. Among them, there was not one German, not one scholar distinguished for historical learning, not one who was fitted by special study of the examination of a subject in which the truth could only be determined by the voice of antiquity. In other words, they, did, they didn't have men who could go back into history and really see what the church believed. They're, they're just basically Jesuit priests who didn't know a whole lot. Um, 
how completely the decision was opposed to the spirit and letter of the original judgments of the Greek and Latin churches, how foreign doctrinal equalization of the disputed and acknowledged books of the Old Testament it was at variance with the traditional opinion of the West, how absolutely unprecedented was the conversion of an ecclesiastical usage into an article of belief will be seen in the evidence which has already been uh, adduced. So he's saying here these men just didn't have the resources or the ability or the desire to go back and really look at what the church said about these things. Uh, they were just basically more politics than anything. We need to, we need to counter the Reformation. Okay? We've got this group of books that helps us counter it, so let's pull them in and allow them to be used and anathematize everybody and would anathematize half the church if that would have actually been true. Um, and another thing, Jeremy sent this, but I really, it's kind of a, a, a small picture. Uh, another reason, too, that we reject it is that uh, it's not quoted in the Old Testament. And, and Jeremy gave this uh, diagram here. There's all, I'm not sure what that represents, but I assume it's the Old Testament is one side and the lines going back are, are its references to the Old Testament. I couldn't blow it up. Um, so that, that's sort of the interaction between the New Testament and the Old Testament in sort of graphical form. And uh, there it is for the references to the Apocrypha. <coughs> now, th there's one chink in the armor of this. W what is it? Yeah. Well, there are some allusions to the Apocrypha. But not quotes. Not quotes. Yeah. So Enoch? Some would say, right? Yeah, but Enoch, Enoch's not part of the Apocrypha. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and if we, we simply used allusions to the Old Testament, there'd be a, a whole lot more. Re Revelation would be one big allusion to the Old Testament. But yeah, we're talking about direct quotes or, or close to direct quotes, where at least that was on their mind. When he quote, but, but what is the chink in the armor of this? Small one that can be overcome, but it's still something we have to explain. There's one book in the Old Testament that's not quoted in the New. Anyone know what it is? Esther. Now, why? What's odd about Esther? The word of God doesn't, God doesn't appear in the book. Yeah, word God or God speaking doesn't appear. So it's not. But the thing about it is that Esther has always been a part of the Palestinian canon or the Masoretic canon. And so it, it's a part of a collection of books that were quoted profusely. So it, it kind of gets in. It's like the, you know, the, the Little League kid who never gets up the bat or never plays, still gets the trophy for being on the team. Well, Esther is kind of the same way. It's a part of that collection that was quoted profusely, and the Apocrypha has not a single representation. Again, there may be allusions, and even those allusions are, are debated, but it's got nothing, and that says something about the validity of this as being canon. Why didn't Christ refer to it? Why didn't the apostles? And again, they had it in their Bibles. They had it in the Septuagint that they used. Why didn't they use it? Well, because they probably saw it as Jerome saw it, or just saw him as just being there and not being usable. We're almost out of time. Any questions or comments? Okay. Well, I thought we'd have to cut this short a little bit, but I'll finish this in time. So next week, we'll, again, we'll, or not next week, two weeks, three weeks from now, we'll look at that issue of uh, would the New Testament have had a natural inclination to produce a canon? And we'll see without a shadow of a doubt they would have. They would have almost expected it, uh, consciously as well as unconsciously. Okay. Well, thanks for your attention. Appreciate it.